Invite our friends who are going to be heading over to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church to be dismissed at this time. Those of you who are going to be remaining in the sanctuary, uh, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Leviticus. I heard laughter. I'm not joking. Um, Turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of Leviticus. So when when I started the Psalms uh, a little while back, I said that what we were going to do is we would do book one of the Psalms. And then we take a, a break and do something else and then come back and do book two. So we wrapped up book one of the Psalms just before Christmas time. I, I paused and did some Advent stuff. And then I took a week off and let Chad preach for me because I still wasn't done working through what I needed to work through to try and preach through the book of Leviticus. And so we're going to be spending the next little bit in Leviticus. That's where we're going to be. Um, now, I, I want to go ahead and just get all the stuff out of the way. All right. Um, is it a difficult book? You better believe it. So years ago, years ago, before um, uh, uh, Christian parody songs were really a thing, you know, because people do that all the time now. There was a very popular Christian pop song called I Can't Get Past the Evidence. I'm not going to sing it for you, but some of you will recognize it or and kind of you're singing it in your head now if you remember the song at the time. And so a song I Can't Get Past the Evidence and a Christian group did a parody of that song, and they entitled it, I Can't Get Past Leviticus. And they and basically, they were singing about their yearly Bible read-through plan, and it was the reason they could never read the Bible. I can't get past Leviticus. I can't get past that book. I can't get past Leviticus. It's impossible to do. It's the reason why I can't read the Bible through. I can't get past Leviticus. Can you? Like, that's how the parody song went. And and most of the time, when you talk to people who embark on a journey like reading the Bible through in a year and that kind of thing, somewhere around Leviticus, they get hung up. Because it's such a complex book. It's very strange. It's odd to us. There's all these sacrifices and all these rules and all these regulations and all these purity rituals and the stuff that just seems kind of out there. And if you happen to muscle your way through Leviticus, then you get to follow it up with numbers, which is even more difficult to get through than Leviticus is. And because it starts with like five or six chapters of, you know, uh, a birth chart, you know, of who everybody's parents are. And so uh, there's a lot in Leviticus, though. Why would we take time to go through such a, 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 a book like this one? Well, let's talk for a second about the importance of the book. In traditional Jewish culture, Leviticus is the first book that a child would usually learn. Like, just let that settle in on the mind for a minute. Most Western, Protestant, non-Jewish Christian people today typically avoid the book of Leviticus meaningfully. They'll read through it in their Bible read-through plan. They might do a little quick eight-week study with somebody on it at some point in their life. But you're rarely going to hear about somebody preaching it from a pulpit. And you're certainly going to rarely hear about, although it did happen here at Sylvania a few years ago, you're rarely going to hear about somebody taking their Sunday school class and just blocking off a year or a year and a half to walk through Leviticus. It's just not normally going to happen. But in Jewish culture, when they were training the children and how they should understand their faith and how they should understand God, they start it with the book of Leviticus. It's a book they start it with. Like when, and this has been going on for millennia, not just recently. Like it's probably the first book as the human child that Jesus learned 
and his understanding of who God was and what his faith and relationship with God should be like as a member of the Jewish community. It was the chief way that they taught their children to understand the holiness of God was the book of Leviticus. And so given that Christianity is so closely associated with Judaism, because it's the fulfillment of that which has come before the new covenant, the better covenant, fulfilling the old covenant. It's kind of important that we look at that. There's also, and a lot of times Christians miss this in their cross-reference study, but there's also a high usage of the book of Leviticus in the New Testament. Some scholars note that there are about 40 direct and clear references to the book of Leviticus in the New Testament, which is a pretty substantial number. That's, that's not a low number of cross-references. However, if you get to allusions and implications, like uh, implicit references, where maybe it's not a direct quotation, but the concept that's being alluded to is a concept that comes from the book of Leviticus, some scholars push that number above 200. That if you understand and know the book of Leviticus, you'll see some references to some things in the New Testament that you didn't realize were coming from the book of Leviticus. Maybe as many as more than 200 times. So there's substantial usage of this book in the New Covenant writings. And that's of value to us as Christians. And then finally, and it's not listed here, but it's the word of God. At least one amen on the fact that Leviticus is the word of God would be awesome. Thank you. Good. Okay, so it's the word of God. God has inspired the book of Leviticus to be useful and helpful and beneficial to his people, knowing something about his character and who we are in relation to him and what it means for us to walk rightly with him. All scripture, and when that text was written, they were referring to the Old Testament, All scripture is given by God and is useful for teaching and training and rebuke and and, and, and correction that that the man of God may be perfect. That's what it's there for. And some of the favorite concepts that we have in our faith actually come from the book of Leviticus. Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount makes a declaration. Some of your translations use the word perfect. Older translations use the word holy. But you should be. Holy as God. You know where that comes from? Leviticus. This concept of our holiness reflecting the holiness of God and that that's what we've been made for to bear God's image as holy image bearers. Direct quotation from Leviticus. And so it's incredibly valuable for us. So how do you approach a book like this? Because this is so far away from any comprehension of we of what we have as modern Western Protestants of how the faith should be. We don't have a tabernacle. We're not looking toward a temple. In fact, we're looking back toward a temple that's been destroyed because we're trying to see the two, the true temple in Jesus. None of us are going to go home and do an incense offering or, you know, cut up an animal and burn its entrails. And, you know, we're not going to do all that stuff. I mean, it might like if you're having a barbecue, you might. But you're not going to do this as like an act of worship to purify yourself before the Lord or anything like that. And so there's a lot of we're not going to go sit outside of the camp, whatever that is for us now, because we are impure and wash ourselves with water before we come back. And it's just so wild. So how do you approach a book like this? So. 
Let's talk about some of the classic themes and perspectives on Leviticus to kind of help us wrap our minds around how the book has been approached before. So first, classically, by most theologians and scholars, Leviticus is often broken down into a two-part division. A two-part division. So normally what people do with Leviticus is they say, okay, the first part of Leviticus chapters 1 through 16 basically explain to us the worship of a holy God. If you want to worship a holy God the right way, here's the way that you worship God correctly. And it's found in the first 16 chapters of Leviticus. And it's burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings. You know, how, how do the priests purify themselves? How do they purify the worship space? How do people purify themselves to come into the worship space? And so if I'm going to worship a holy God, what does that look like? What are the steps that need to be taken? And so the first 16 chapters, roughly, give or take, talk mostly about worshiping a holy God. And then the last half of the book, the second part of the book, chapters 17 through 27, deal generally with walking in holiness before God and with others. Walking in holiness before God and with others. So if I'm going to worship a holy God and if I'm going to be holy the way that God is holy and if I'm going to reflect God's image, that means I'm going to engage people in this realm a certain way. And what should that look like? What, how should I engage foreigners? How should I engage a marital relationship? How should I engage my children? How should I engage people who have wronged me? And uh, like, how should we walk through all of these complex things that, that begin to take place? And I'll go ahead and say that these divisions can be very helpful. And they've been helpful for a long time in the Christian world. But they're not precise. Because there's also things about walking in holiness in the first 16 chapters. There's also things about worshiping God who's holy in the last group of the chapter 17 through 27. And so there's not a good break like that. It's general, but it's not as specific as some people would like for it to be as precise as they would like it to be. So what some others have done, and I've kind of compiled these from a lot of different places. There's five key concepts found in the book of Leviticus. And a lot of times people will structure their teaching of Leviticus around these key concepts. And so the first key concept that is often found in the book of Leviticus is how to enter into God's presence for worship. That's the first key concept, how to enter into God's presence for worship. And that's found all throughout Leviticus. Am I pure? Am I clean? Am I not pure? Am I not clean? Have I sinned? Have I had my sins? Reconciled? Am I able to come into the presence of God? And of course, there's varying presence of God. Am I just a, a regular person? Am I a priest? Am I the high priest? You know, what does that look like? And depending on where I stand in society and what kind of offerings am I supposed to make and that sort of thing. So how do I enter into God's presence for worship? Second, how can I be pure before a holy God? How can I be pure before a holy God? What a lot of people don't realize, and we'll get to this in a little more detail in just a second, is that... Many of the offerings made in the book of Leviticus are not because a person sinned. There are those, there are sin offerings in the book of Leviticus, but actually a majority of the offerings made in the book of Leviticus don't have to do with intentional or unintentional sinning. It has to do with a social and religious condition of purity or impurity. 
And I'll kind of give you an example not found in Leviticus, but just of society at large. Okay, so let's say that you're a a young boy or young girl and you've gone out to play and your parents tell you that they're having a really swank dinner party at their house that night. It's going to be, you know, black tie. Everybody's going to dress up and they want you to also dress up at the at the shindig and everybody's going to have a really good time. And there's a certain way you're supposed to dress and a certain way you're supposed to look when you come into this party. So you and your buddies, you go out and you go playing all afternoon and, you know, you're you're running through the field. I know that for a lot of kids, they're like, what are you talking about? Like, this is playing. OK, so now you're running through a field. There's an outside world and you're chasing frogs and you're getting dirty and there's mud on you. And it's. There's nothing wrong with that. Nobody told you you couldn't do that. You're wearing the appropriate clothes to go and do that. And you're, 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 you're having a great time. You're getting sweaty. You're getting hot. You're getting sticky. You know, and then you show back up to, to home and you recognize I've got to put on something else to go to this other thing. I haven't done anything wrong, but I'm not clean to go to this thing. I need to be clean in order to go into that room and do that thing. Because that is not the same thing as the thing I was just doing. And the thing I was just doing isn't wrong. They're just different. And I can't wear those muddy, smelly, sweaty clothes to go into this place to do this formal, fancy thing. I've got to put on it. I've got to get, I gotta wash myself off. Got to put on nicer clothes and then I can go inside. The vast majority of the stuff in the book of Leviticus is that kind of stuff. It's not that people did anything wrong. It's just that God expects people to be a certain way when they come in his presence. And it's telling the people of Israel, this is how you need to be. How are you able to be pure, clean before a holy God? So there's that That concept that's there. A third concept that emerges in the book of Leviticus is identifying the barriers that come between us and God because of sin, because of actual sin. Because there are some things in Leviticus about our sin and how it separates us from God. And so what are some of the barriers that begin to exist between us and a holy God because of our sin? And then in conjunction with that, a fourth concept in the book of Leviticus is how can we be forgiven of that sin? So I, there are times where I am sinning and that sin makes a separation between me and God. How then can I be forgiven of that sin so that I am no longer separated from a holy God because of it? And then finally, fifth key concept that is found in the book of Leviticus is how can I live reconciled with my neighbor? They're a sinner. Sometimes they're unclean. Sometimes they're an unclean sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm unclean. Sometimes I'm an unclean sinner. Their uncleanliness and my uncleanliness, their sinning and my sinning will sometimes cause us to be in conflict with one another because we're in conflict with our God. And how, if I can be forgiven and reconciled to God, can I also be forgiven and reconciled to my neighbor? And Leviticus walks through some of those as well. Now, having said all of that, that's not how we're going to go through Leviticus. I just wanted you to know that that's usually how people go through Leviticus. It's not what we're going to do. We're going to take a Christological approach to Leviticus. If you were 
really paying attention and you looked in the bulletin, you saw that the title of the sermon series is paid in full, Seeing Jesus in the Book of Leviticus. So, what is a Christological approach? Keep your finger in Leviticus, flip over with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 24, and in a moment, Hebrews chapter 1. And as we walk through Leviticus in this way, you're going to hear that a lot. In fact, when you come in on Sundays, you might just want to keep, I've got one here in my preaching Bible, you might just want a little piece of paper stuffed in the back by the book of Hebrews, because we'll be talking about it a lot. Because the book of Hebrews and the book of Leviticus go hand to hand with each other. In fact, you have a much more profound understanding of Hebrews when you have a deep understanding of the book of Leviticus. Because there's a lot of allusions and borrowing that are happening between the two books. But in Luke chapter 24, in verse 27. um, In fact, we'll back up just a little bit to give some context. And so this is on the... uh, the road, Jesus has been resurrected. Um, the, the men run into him. Jesus asks, hey, what's been going on? In verse 19, they begin walking through the, the events of the crucifixion. And they were, you know, we were hoping he was the Messiah and, and that sort of thing. And then they say, hey, you know, some, some, some people went. They found the tomb empty. We haven't, you know, we haven't seen him. They're kind of stressed out about all that. Verse 24. And so Jesus, beginning in verse 25, says, and he said to them, oh, foolish men. And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Verse 27. Then beginning with Moses. Let's make this easy this morning. Author of Leviticus. Just throw that out there. Okay. So beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets. He, Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. And then if you fast forward to verse 44. Jesus still speaking, now speaking to some other disciples, says, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. So Jesus has made a declaration that all of the Old Testament is about him. And when he taught about himself from the Old Testament, he started with the books of Moses, which includes the book of Leviticus. So you flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. To continue this Christological approach, Hebrews chapter 1, and beginning in verse 1 and closing in verse 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, and in many portions, and in many ways. So the fathers goes all the way back to Abraham, which is found in Genesis, which is found in a book of Moses. So we're starting in the books of Moses again, moving up through the prophets and in many portions and in many ways. So that's going to be the writings and dreams and visions and all manner of things in these last days, which the New Testament uh, uh, writers believe that they were in. And we all should believe that we are still in because Christ ushered in the last days at the uh, the inauguration of the kingdom at his first coming. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so I, there's many other texts that we could go to, but the New Testament is adamant that the Old Testament is not really a story about the nation of Israel. The Old Testament is a story about Jesus and the nation of Israel's need of him and a longing that the whole world would be blessed by the one who comes to redeem them. That's really what the Old Testament is about. 
It's a type and a shadow of what was to come. And the one who was to come is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so on every page of the Old Testament, we should see a picture of Jesus. I would argue that you profoundly see a picture of Jesus on every page of the book of Leviticus. Because it's about what makes God holy and what can make us holy, broken sinners that we are before God. In fact, the law, the writings, the prophets, they all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the new and better Adam. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. Jesus is the true and great prophet. Jesus is the king, not David. Jesus is the keeper of the law and the giver of grace. The New Testament, in essence, says all of this about Jesus. So let's revisit those five key concepts that we talked about a second ago. The five key concepts we talked about a second ago that are found in Leviticus. Let's talk about them again, but in the forms of questions. How do we enter God's presence for worship? Through the person and work of Jesus. It's very clear. How do we become pure before a holy God? Through the person and work of Jesus. How are the barriers between us and God because of sin removed? Through the person and work of Jesus. How are we forgiven when those barriers are removed? Through the person and work of Jesus. How do we then live reconciled with our neighbors? Through the person and work of Jesus. Every major concept that emerges in the book of Leviticus is answered in the new covenant through the person and work of Jesus. So we should see him there. And so over the next several weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a Christological approach. If the Old Testament is a type and shadow of the one who is to come. And if Christ is the fulfillment of the law and all of the covenants, then we should be able to see him and see him clearly in the text of Leviticus. And that's what we're going to attempt to do over the next several weeks. So I want to give us a functional start. This is the last time that this few of verses will be covered in this series. We are not my son. My oldest son, Andrew, was like, dude, really two verses? I was like, oh, man. It's going to take us 87 years to get through Leviticus. No, we're not going to do that. We're not doing that. Leviticus moves in very large thematic chunks. That's what we're going to do. There will be some weeks where I'm going to get somebody else to do it mid-service, but we're going to have scripture reading from Leviticus. We're going to cover like three chapters that day because those three chapters are all about the same thing. And we'll just read it and then we'll unpack the thing that it's about is what we'll do in the sermon. But this is a functional start so that we can see Jesus in the very first words of Leviticus. I want you to notice the language of the start of Leviticus. This is how Leviticus starts. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord. And we'll, we'll stop there. And I want you to notice what's, what's happening here. Notice this, this four-part introduction in the first two verses. First, God, the Lord, the covenant name of God. All capitalized letters. That's Jehovah, if you will, Yahweh, 
Many people don't like to still try to pronounce it because we're not exactly sure how to say it. But it's the covenant name of God. So the Lord calls to Moses. That word for calls means to someone, summon someone to a particular task. All right, so God himself, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the universe, that's the reason why they're using that one and not a different name for God in the Old Testament. He is the I Am. That's where that comes from. The God of all existence and sovereignty is summoning Moses to a task. All right, so keep that in mind. And then I want you to notice the location of the summoning. Notice what it says. He called to Moses and spoke to him from where? What does it say? The tent of meeting. What is that? He, he, he summons Moses from the tent of meeting. What is the tent of meeting to the Israelites in the Old Testament? It is the place of God's presence among men on earth. Pause for a second. It is... God's presence among men on earth. That's what the tent of meeting is. You can't go to where God is. So instead, he comes to where we are. If you're not seeing Jesus, I feel so sorry for you right now. That's the definition of incarnation. God shows up in an earthly sphere to commune with his people. Because his people cannot go to where he is, the all-present God, and commune with him there, wherever that is. He has to manifest himself in some physical way for them because they are physical people. So you have a summoning of a servant from the word of the one true sovereign God. And he calls to him from the physical place of meeting where God dwells among men on earth. And then he commands Moses to speak his truth to his people. Notice what he says. Speak to the sons of Israel. And he's about to tell him everything he's supposed to say to them. I want you to declare my truth to these people. And I want it to come from the source of the place where I meet with you physically in this realm. And then what does he command him to speak? What is the commandment that's given to the people? Life as worship. By the way, I just summarized Leviticus 1, 2 through chapter 27. Like we really could skip all the other sermons, but I want you to see it. Life as worship is what he commands him to speak. When he starts calling out all these offerings and he calls out these purity rituals and he calls out these social personal relationship rituals and all the other things that are going to happen in the book of Leviticus. It is a declaration that the Israelites should have their whole life marked as worship. Everything they do, everything they are should be a reflection of their love for the glory of this God. Now, hear me this morning. I want to make a point about something. I'm not going to get into this sort of weeds the rest of the way going, but I want you to see this. I want you to notice this word here for offering. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, because that's this life is worship, this offering, this giving. Paul talks about that in Romans. You know, what is your spiritual act of worship? It's this this offering of your very life. 
When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord. This is a very unique word for offering. This word for offering is translated in the New Testament in a conversation with Jesus where he condemns the Pharisees for not taking care of their aging parents. It's the word Corbin. Some of you that may have kind of rattled something around in your head. You know, Jesus says, hey, you Pharisees, you go and you make an offering and you declare it Corbin. And therefore, you don't have to go and give what you need to give to the people you're supposed to be taking care of. And you do a disservice both to the name of the Lord and to the people you're supposed to be taking care of. And it's a sharp rebuke of the Pharisees in the New Testament when he says that. This is the first place in the entire Old Testament that that word for offering is used right here. This word for offering... This particular word, Corban, is used 80 times in the Old Testament. 40 of them are in the book of Leviticus. It is the most common word for offering in the book of Leviticus. 38 of them are used in the book of Numbers, the next book. 78 of the 80 are used in these two books together. Two other times it's used in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel, of all places. Nowhere else in the law. Nowhere else where it talks about offerings and sacrifices. Only in Leviticus, only in Numbers, in in Moses' writings. In the book of Ezekiel, it's really intriguing. Because one time it's used as false offering to an idol. You have often this Corban to this false idol. The other time, the last time that it's ever used in the Old Testament. I find this massively fascinating and actually somewhat valid to the conversation we're going to have in the book of Leviticus. Ezekiel, <coughs> excuse me, Ezekiel describes a cosmic eschatological temple, third temple, if you will. There are some people who think that that's a literal temple that will come at the end. That's fine. I'm not going to get down on your eschatological view. I don't think that that's what that is. I think it's a description of the temple reality of Jesus and his people. I think that's what Ezekiel's describing in there. And in the midst of that description, the very last time that this word for offering is used, they talk about the table at which the offering should be laid. And the word for offering used there is this word. The word that is used to describe life as worship. The last time it's used in the Old Testament is in an eschatological future. The Messiah has come and fulfilled all things and all things are made new. And when you lay that offering down, this is the way that that offering is supposed to be given. So this is a very unusual word for offering used very particularly in Leviticus and Numbers. What does it mean? The word Corban can be two kinds of offering, and we'll see this throughout Leviticus. First, it can either be an offering that's used as a form of restitution for sin. That's normally what we think about when we think about offering. Hey, I sinned, I make an offering, I make restitution to God, I've been forgiven. That's normally how we think about offering. It can mean that. And it does mean that in certain places in Leviticus. But it can also mean simply an act of adoration and worship of a deity. I'm bringing this offering not because I've done anything wrong. I'm bringing this offering because you're a great God. And I love you. And I want to commune with you. And I want to show in some simple, small human way my adoration of you. I know you're not mad at me. 
And I know I haven't necessarily done anything wrong against you to have you mad at me. I'm just acknowledging that you're the great creator God and I'm your creature and I'm thankful. This word can also mean that. And so when you say Corbin, when you say this kind of offering, it could be an offering for my sin. Or it could just be an offering because I love God. And so it's very important that we note that when the Lord commands Moses to make a declaration to the people, the word that he uses first time in the Old Testament for this type of offering is an offering that could be for sin or just could be for love. Because our lives are supposed to be marked out that way, constantly making sure that we're walking rightly with God and not sinning against him and making sure that our hearts adore him. What is the summation of all the law? Love God and love people. And this word encompasses all of that. Because God is not like the other pagan gods. He's not merely appeased by our offerings. We are to commune with him. We're to love him. We're to know him. And he has set up earthly access to himself in the earthly realm during the days of the book of Leviticus. We could not go to him. So he came to us. This is the first sign of Jesus in the book of Leviticus. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God establishes an earthly presence of himself so that his people can commune with him, know him, and love him. And at this place of communion, they will have their sins forgiven and they will have holiness restored on them as it was in the beginning. Friends, that, if not a picture of Jesus and his work, I don't know what is. And so the thesis statement that Moses gives to us at the beginning of the book of Leviticus is a declaration in type and shadow of there is one coming who is all of this. And everything else that I'm about to tell you, if you'll look closely enough, will point you to him. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the richness of a book like Leviticus. That's scary and complicated and strange as it is to our eyes and to our ears and to our lives. is filled to the full with glorious pictures of your son, Jesus. And Father, as we walk together. As we dig up these precious stones of the glory of your son, Jesus, in this wonderful book, may our minds and our hearts be enlarged to worship him all the more for what he has done for us. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. I invite you to.